0: Blaze Radio Network. And now, Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Hope you've all been doing well. Thank you for joining me again. If you're new, welcome to a podcast that talks about the front lines of national security, American uh, ideals, constitutional principles, liberty, from the mindset of an American Muslim who not only loves this country and has served, but also believes that the Americanism, if you will, as an ideology, is the solution against radical Islam, against the battle against jihad globally, and that ultimately will be the only potent idea not only against the theocratic perception of political Islam, but an idea for which Muslims can become animated and thus defeat the Islamic State that has so far continued to dominate so many Muslim countries. I'm not just talking about Islamic State, ISIS, but Islamic Republics of Iran, Pakistan, and elsewhere. So thank you for joining me. Hope you've had a good last few weeks. Hope you had a great Memorial Day with your family. And again, God bless all those who gave the ultimate sacrifice for our country. We would not have the freedoms that we do without them. And while we are reminded of how fragile democracy is from the horrific attacks, terrorism, in Buffalo in Uvalde and elsewhere. Not a single loss of life is ever worthwhile. Not a single catastrophic incident should happen, but we do our best to avoid them and we will go on. Hopefully we can find the things that unite us, that bring us together and rise above them rather than divide us and bring us into rancor and prevent us from doing the right things to prevent future attacks. And, you know, listen, I come, my family comes from a country in which people had no gun rights, had no ability to defend themselves, and that thus resulted in, now, generations of domination, genocide, and otherwise against the Syrian people. But I understand there's a conversation to be had about security, about the need to secure our schools, about the need... To make sure that we can send our kids, our young children, to grade school, junior, high school, college, and not worry about mass shootings. So let's have that conversation. But let's also not forget the values that got us here. The values that protect us. That ultimately there may be other diseases causing these things. That might be related to 21st century social media, psychiatric illness division, hate, bigotry, viral spread of ideas, all the things that might be grossly exaggerated into this century rather than focusing on one of those items that might include the weapon used or otherwise. But this week I want to talk to you about the things that I think you can't hear elsewhere that are unique to this program that should be on major networks, but they're not. There's recently an outspoken family member of one of the leading Iranian families of the Islamist radicals, if you will, that has made some waves that I think is worth discussing and worth mentioning. I also want to talk about American unexceptionalism, which Michael Doran talked about and then last the largest islamic organization in america had on its cover a unbelievably volatile description of what's happening in india that i think speaks to the ideology that's running the muslim brotherhood and islamist legacy groups that are running the Islamic side of North America, and we'll talk about that. So, first, who would have guessed? Who would have guessed that Fazia Rafsanjani, the daughter of a former president of the Islamic Republic of Iran, who died in 2017, would say the words, quote, the only way the IRGC, the Islamic Republican Guard Corps, labeled, uh, uh, diagnosed, and uh, designated by the Trump administration as a foreign terrorist organization. One of the first times, I think, if not the first time, that a military arm of an established government in the world was designated a foreign terrorist organization. That's not to say that we shouldn't have done so before, but at least finally an American president di- designated or diagnosed the IRGC as what it is, which is a horrifically evil terror organization. Rafsanjani's daughter said that the IRGC will be forced to go back to the barracks and stop its business activities is for it to remain in the sanctions list. That's the only way. So who would have thought that a family member of a previous president... We used to talk... You know, they used to talk about Rafsanjani as being a moderate... And some of us would say, what do you mean moderate? Come on, you're dancing on the head of a pin. Just because he talks about civilizational jihad and less militant and openly barbaric means of oppressing the people doesn't mean that his Islamic state is the same. Doesn't mean that his sharia state that beats women slaughters homosexuals and calls for death to Israel death to the United States, that these types of um, so-called calls for sitting down at the table, negotiating, and it's not moderation, it's simply different instruments to get to the same ends. But perhaps things might be changing. Or perhaps it is worth noting that when a family member who has lived through the horror of the Islamic supremacism of Tehran gets the courage, gets the wherewithal to begin to push back and she then has paid a price for that. But there, There's something to be learned about the weakness of the regime in Tehran. There's something to be learned about whether appeasement is the right approach. Rafsanjani's daughter By the way, Ali Rafsanjani, uh, and this was reported by Patkan Azarmer and Stephen Emerson in the investigative project who always do fantastic work on counterterrorism and the threats globally from jihad, they talk about this unlikely dissident in Iran. And they said, over the years, the IRGC overwhelmingly dominated key sectors of Iran's economy, so that despite rampant inflation, a shortage of goods, and a descent into poverty by millions of Iranians, the leadership level of the IRGC has been able to flourish economically. Rafsanjani's daughter, like many others in Iran, is calling for the IRGC to go back to the barracks and let go of its stranglehold on Iran and its economy. She specifically emphasized in the same event her utter disdain for the IRGC, which she repeatedly urged to be kept on the sanctions lift list. I believe the removal, she said, of the IRGC from the sanctions list would be very harmful to the interest of the Iranian people. Hello? You listening, President Biden? Even the family members of the radical Islamists don't want it removed from the sanctions list. But, You know, we haven't heard much about the nuclear deal that supposedly they were going to re-invoke within 6 to 12 months, and it hasn't. Perhaps the Islamists in Tehran are even too militantly radical for the Biden administration and its progressive Islamist alliance. I'll remind you that the IRGC was created after the overthrow of the Iranian secular monarchy in seventy-nine in parallel to the Iranian army and its revolution. And although the process of Islamification of the regular army after four decades of Ayatollahs in power is well entrenched, the IRGC is still, as Emerson points out, the more ideological, more loyal and trusted armed forces of the Ayatollahs. And in fact, that's the military arm that went into Syria and is much more potent and was able to quickly effectuate in just a few thousand troops acts of terror and suppression of a lot of the moderates in Syria along side-by-side side with the Russian military that had also deployed into Syria. And yet the Biden administration wants to remove them from the FTO foreign terrorist organization list and their keen need to have a nuclear deal is blinding them and while Rafsanjani's daughter is calling for the maintenance of the IRGC on the foreign terrorist organization list Robert Malley Biden's man in Tehran or wherever he is uh uh, obsequiously kowtowing to the Islamist radicals of Tehran. The same advisor in the Obama administration that negotiated the first JCPOA is using all of his imaginative creativity to find a way of delisting the IRGC just to appease the Ayatollahs as a olive branch. Yeah, freeing a terror organization from a list is their olive branch. He's using all of his ways of creativity to appease them. And it's also worth noting that the Iranian lobbyists that are helping Mali to overcome the IRGC sticking point, as Emerson called it, are mostly second-generation Iranian-Americans whose fathers were the courtiers of Iran's ancient regime. It's amazing these iranian americans have become the civilizational jihadis here in the west the de facto lobby which is the national iranian american council they had fits over the irgc designation as an fdo and in public the islamic republic when talking about Rafsanjani's daughter said the irgc's activities are too She said this, actually, the IRGC's activities are to the detriment of the nation, Rafsanjani's daughter said of the IRGC. She's been jailed twice. She's um, been abused, tortured. She stood up for the persecuted Baha'i religion minority. She expressed support for President Trump's maximum pressure policies as a way of changing Iran's behavior. The latest statement she said in a Twitter clubhouse virtual meeting, social media clubhouse virtual meeting, caused backlash by regime loyalists. They said, the, the, the state agency, this is what they said, she has practically acted as America's infantry inside Iran. One woman is now an in infantry. Shows you their misogyny, shows you their fear and how weak they really are. If one dissident, now granted she hails from a prominent family with historical roots, but the bottom line is is that these guys are likely far, far more weak than the Biden administration and Obama administration want us to believe. The Farce News Agency said, Imam Khomeini said that if there were no revolutionary guards, there would be no Islamic Republic. Oh, I'm sure... And yet she is trying to destroy this same institution. And he continued, she's wielding her sword against Islam and the regime. Note, somebody who disagrees with the military oppressive force that is torturing genocidally its people and people of Syria and elsewhere is now against Islam. And also against the government. Shows you the way the Islamists think. She responded in right and said what the IRGC inflicts on the Iranian society is damaging and must be stopped somewhere. Lots going on in Iran, folks. But I can tell you one thing. Someone who also hails from families that have given a lot of blood and treasure to try to fight back against the evil of Islamism and the connections with Iran and elsewhere in Syria that appeasement will never, never work. In fact, it will be a way towards surrender, weakness, and defeat. And when the cards give us a family member, like Rafsanjani's daughter, who decides to take on the regime, we need to amplify those voices. We need to turn that and expose it for the weakness that it is of the regime, and not continue the programs of fealty to a nuclear deal that will only hasten the time in which they get nuclear weapons. When we come back, we're going to talk about unexceptionalism. A few weeks ago, Michael Duran at the Hudson Institute wrote, I think, a extraordinarily important piece, not only for this year, but perhaps for many of us in this decade and these administrations as far as trying to find an understanding of the harm in which a lack of an American doctrine across the world as both parties start to struggle with the need to interfere or to play a role of any kind in foreign policy as we look more towards domestic issues. And at Barry Weiss's Common Sense, uh, Michael wrote a piece called The Doctrine of American Unexceptionalism. And I think he found a way to articulate what many of us have been thinking about which is okay if if the biden administration as with the biden with the obama administration before them do not they, they never released a counterterrorism policy they they have no uh, agenda uh, to demonstrate other than continued sort of a staccato of fealty to progressivists to dictatorships to appease powers across the world, and that somehow that demonstrates a doctrine. But it still does not show any ideology. It's you could sometimes root it in climate change defense. You could sometimes root it in anti suppose it, anti racism or the rights of whatever identity group they're trying to push at the current moment. But that's not a strategy. That's not a national security strategy. It's not an advancement necessarily of American values or stability. But then Duran summarizes best. He said, the Biden administration believes that soft power is smart, and hard power is dumb. And as a result, many of our allies across the world are paying the price. And at the top of his piece is a photo of the three leading beneficiaries of that, uh, Putin, Jinping, Xi Jinping, China, and then Hassan Rouhani of Iran in 2019. Let's look at how, how restrained Iran has been with Biden. Duran writes that over the past six months, Iran has launched multiple ballistic missile and drone attacks on American allies like the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, through its Houthi proxy in Yemen. It conducted a direct attack, this time through a proxy in Iraq, on American forces in Al-Tanf, Syria, and it hatched a plot to kidnap the Iranian-American journalist, Messiah. Anidijad, from her home in Brooklyn, had actively pursued plans to assassinate former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, former Iran envoy Brian Hook, and former National Security Advisor John Bolton. In the context of nuclear negotiations, the Biden team asked Tehran politely to put an end to these assassination plots, and Tehran said, no. But yet, the Biden administration played down these provocations and said, oh, whatever, that's how they are. The question is why? But, as Doran points out, it's not that the White House wants to do anything to slow down or derail its effort to revive the joint comprehensive plan of action, the JCPOA, as the nuclear deal was known as is known as the Biden administration operates within the lines that the, pres- that the President Obama drew when he first sold the Iran deal. There really are only two alternatives here. either Iran gets a nuclear weapon, Or it's resolved diplomatically through negotiation. That's what Obama said. Or then do we resolve it through force, through war? I didn't seem to have read any of the, you know, these Harvard frat boys running the foreign policy of Obama-Biden seem to not really understand nuance and prevention, deterrence a lot of unbelievably successful foreign policy initiatives have been done through deterrence. You know, it's interesting. I was asked to speak to uh, the military community in Omaha, and this was years ago. And as much as that's where our training facilities are for nuclear programs nuclear weapons and otherwise, their entire focus, obviously, is on deterrence. But they want to understand the enemy first. So when you're talking about deterrence from nuclear conflict, the way to deter nuclear conflict is to deter conventional conflict. And the way to deter conventional conflict is not through weakness and appeasement, but through strength. But this is the debate America should be having, because as we start to polarize in this country, separated between, one and this is not along party lines, we're separated between one group that at all costs really wants nothing to do with the world in general, and simply allow a Darwinian process of ascendancy, of influence from Saudi Arabia to Russia, to China, Iran, Venezuela and elsewhere. Then there's the other side that includes some folks that still believe in nation-building and, and uh, uh, belligerence, but actually that's a minor minority. There is a growing group that still believes in American exceptionalism, that we have a role that nobody else can fill in the world. Even NATO... While they join us and we protect them and other secular democracies in the West, uh, the ultimate issue is that, left to its own devices, freedom and liberty will wane without America's position of strength made clear wherever the inflection points might exist. But is this happening? What happens to American exceptionalism if we have president after president? Now, again, the Trump administration, I think, also wanted to withdraw in many ways from the world, but it did not do so through appeasement. It left the fear of God in Iran. It left the fear of retaliation in the Taliban. And while Trump called for the removal of troops from Afghanistan, the way that Biden did so was one of weakness that will forever leave an indelible writing in the Farsi, Arabic, Pashtu language of the Islamists that ultimately America came. We stayed... And they lost after they were worn out and tired and went with their tail between their legs and Islamism, the Islamic State, the Islamic Republic of the Taliban won victoriously over the weak Americans that did not have the stomach to stay. Even though they stayed 20 years, they still lost. That's the narrative. Now it horrifies me that that's the narrative. It horrifies me that we gave so much blood and treasure to try to liberate that state. But I've talked to you before on this podcast on how problematic and error-filled was the lack of strategy that we had there, the lack of ability to transfer power in that country to its own apparatus that could transition towards some semblance of democracy and civil society, but we never did that. And then actually we left with such a sonic boom... That it imploded and let the Taliban fill that vacuum quickly, and uh, not to mention the Americans and our allies that we left behind. And that narrative will also be used repeatedly to weaken us across the Islamic propaganda networks. Oh, and never mind that now we see the Christian Amman Poors of the world interviewing. Taliban leaders and asking them all oh, those oh so tough questions how is it that now you promised that women would be able to go to school they'd be able to dress of their own choice and now they seem to be back to the way they were when the Taliban ran pre-America being forced into only one type of dress and being prevented from going to school and the Taliban spokesperson, bloviated and denied, and then said that's their culture, and that we are a failure, and she was hardly an advocate for freedom and democracy. As Doran says, he asked the question, why? Why is America making moves that seem nothing less than appeasement? What makes the Biden team so eager to cut a deal that guarantees a nuclear Iran? Why has the White House placed Moscow in the catbird seat in these negotiations? And why is it treating China as a key partner in the deal even as China openly proclaims its intention to overturn the American-led world order? And why has Biden entirely excluded traditional allies such as Israel and Saudi Arabia from the negotiations? And he further points out that the answers lie in something Mahmoud Abazada Meshkini, mashkini a spokesperson for the Iranian parliament's National Security and Foreign Policy Committee, said, he said, in the new world order, a triangle consisting of three powers, Iran, Russia, and China has formed, he declared on the eve of the Ukrainian war. This new arrangement heralds the end of the inequitable hegemony of the United States and the West. He's right. He's right. The Biden administration has completely surrendered American presence in the world. And actually, Duran hit the nail on the head. It is all about American unexceptionalism. How can we continue to create more vacuums, more absences, so that the world starts to operate in a way that not only do we not exist, we are a paper tiger. We are a paper tiger that... People will think we'll step in when necessary and don't, thus actually accelerating the defeat of our allies. And he said, indeed, at its deepest level, the Iran nuclear deal is an instrument for rejecting American exceptionalism. The notion that the United States is uniquely poised by history and geography to exercise leadership on the international stage and for ushering in a post-American global order. That's what American exceptionalism is. But it is only through understanding this worldview that it is possible to understand America's confounding and seemingly contradictory moves on the world stage. Duran said he comes to think of it as a reverse American exceptionalism. Obama said, "I believe in American exceptionalism just as I suspect that the Brits believe in British exceptionalism and the Greeks believe in Greek exceptionalism, he said. That was a provocative sentence that drove headlines, but as Duran said, it was what Obama said next. That was key. America's leadership role he insisted depends on our ability to create partnerships. That's because he said America can't solve problems alone. And the Iran deal was a direct outgrowth of this perspective. So, partnerships with evil regimes, maybe. Obama dreamed, he told David Remnick of The New Yorker in 14, of an equilibrium between the Gulf states and Iran in which there's competition, perhaps suspicion, but not an active or proxy warfare. And, you know, a lot of these bizarre strategies of weakness come out of some kernels of truth since uh, the search for regional stability is indeed the job of america but obama's route to achieve it was loopy as he noted was loopy the problem in his eyes were america's allies israel and saudi arabia's maximalist agenda were hastening conflict launching the us into unnecessary confrontation with iran Thus, the goal of American policy should be to moderate both the Iranians and traditional American allies by accommodating Tehran. In a very revealing quote, Biden in 2014 lamented the opposition of America's allies to Syrian dictator Assad. He said, our biggest problem is our allies. As president, Biden has placed former Obama staffers in key positions, men who, like their mentor, believe that stability will come only after the United States reigns in its allies, thus proving to Tehran that it can best solve its security dilemmas in concert with Washington. Mali, who's running the JCPOA reinvigoration, said, the ultimate goal was to help the Middle East find a more stable balance of power that would make it less dependent on direct U.S. interference or protection. As Jake Sullivan, Biden's national security advisor, wrote in May 2020, a few months into the administration, he said, or a few months, uh, I'm sorry, uh, before that, he said, it's to be less ambitious militarily in the Middle East, but more ambitious in using U.S. leverage and diplomacy to press for a de-escalation in tensions and eventually a new modus vivendi among the key regional actors. So as Duran points out, the path to establishing equilibrium is to court the Iranian regime, not to crush it, to kiss their derriere. The Obama-Biden doctrine is no more downsizing or right-sizing of America's role in the Middle East. The United States could, for example, pull back militarily while demanding that allies do more to confront Iran. This doctrine, as Mike Duran brilliantly calls it American unexceptionalism is opposed to the very idea of the balance of power as we've understood it in ancient times and you know again I know there's those voices that are saying we don't need to be in foreign wars we have gotten nothing for it and actually not only lost lives but it has put us in a weaker position now listen you can make very valid arguments about the lack of a need ever to aggressively and openly invade countries. But it's one thing to say we don't invade nations, and it's another to say that we actually assist, abet, and aid, whether economically or whatever it is, regimes that we share not only no values with, but that are genocidal, whether it's China or Iran. And it's another thing to say that, okay, it's like living in a home. You, you just care about your own home security? Or do you care about the security and the whole neighborhood. You care about the guards. You care about the lay of the land and who's coming and going. And there are so many analogies that we can invoke. But the bottom line is, is that the world is a dangerous place. That if we don't have an ideological plan to counter those who do have offensive ideological plans, as the progressivists and Islamists do, that our avoidance of it is not a strategy. That that strategy actually ends up being complete and unmitigated surrender with an acceleration of the loss of the way of life as we know it. You can always criticize a decision to be forward in the advancement of American ideas, but this is not about black and white binary choices. It's about whether weakness and subservience to these powers and helping them ascend is a better idea than advancing our own offense. And I'm talking offense ideologically, offense through deterrence. And okay, you can make the argument that if you're going to deter, you have to be ready to go to war. But if you never even try to deter, then you're basically giving the world a green light to advance everywhere they want, except on your own shores. And by the time they get to your shores, it's too late. Oh, even on our own shores, we're letting them come in to the tunes of millions in the last year. Doran continues, Democrats believe that as a result of the end of the Cold War and the advent of a globalized and digitally networked World, humanity has transitioned to a more advanced stage in history. We've somehow migrated beyond the time-honored truth of Machiavelli, Kissinger, Matternick, et al. In such conditions to adopt a traditional balance of power approach is not simply unnecessary, it is positively self-defeating. These end-of-history assumptions that a multipolar world is inevitable and that free trade and capitalism combine to form a powerful asset, acid that will dissolve both state interests and national particularism, have a long American pedigree. They do. And that's why my family came to the West, was a belief that free markets, rugged individualism, was ultimately allowed us to be as Muslim as we wanted, as human as we wanted, without any of the shackles of a regime that prevented that. And that aspiration, that then bears fruit for many of those who embrace it, is not only intoxicating to others, but it will defeat, defeat those who advance socialism, progressivism, and uh, the... Propaganda of authoritarian regimes. President Clinton, as Doran points out, wrote a letter to congressional leaders in 2000 to justify the accession of China to the World Trade Organization. He said, As China's people become more mobile, prosperous, and aware of alternative ways of life, they will seek greater say in the decisions that affect their lives. The democratizing process will strengthen the rule of law at home, while abroad China will become a more constructive player with a stake in preserving peace and stability. It's not how it's really bearing out, is it? But there's some reality to that, a little bit in background, isn't there? As more and more Chinese realize, through some free markets, the world, their government, is trying to prevent them from knowing Clinton borrowed that theory from Woodrow Wilson, who, from the book Perpetual Peace, a book by a German philosopher, Immanuel Kant, wrote that war need not be a permanent feature of international life, Kant argued. States have it within their grasp to establish a universal and self-perpetuating peace by recognizing a few key principles and creating an international federation dedicated to upholding them. On American soil, constant intellectual descendants created an optimistic, quasi-religious belief that capitalism, free trade, diplomatic transparency, and voluntary restraint and warfare would spur the advent of global peace. Now, Clinton and his letter about China was obviously now being proven not exactly true. But it was endorsed An idea endorsed by both the left and the right from the Times to the Wall Street Journal. But now more clear-eyed thinking, as Chinese leader Xi Jinping and Russian leader Putin have used profits from participation in the American-led global free trade system to build war machines dedicated to overturning that very system. The reputations of China and Russia as evolving democracies has tanked to the basement. And now, with the influence of Russia and China in the Middle East, realpolitik has begun to settle, especially in the Middle East. And Obama said it in an era when our destiny is shared, power is no longer a zero-sum game. He said to the UN General Assembly, "No one in No one nation, rather, can or should try to dominate another nation. No world order that elevates one nation or group of people over another will succeed. Note that Obama did not exhort the United Nations to create a new system. He claimed that the fundamentals of a more advanced order were already in place. The people of the world want change. They will not long tolerate those who are on the wrong side of history. And now we circle full back. In Duran's piece to where he says experienced men like Jake Sullivan and Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, are fully aware that traditional military tools continue to play an indispensable role in international affairs, but they are constantly striving to minimize that role. Power politics, as practiced from time immemorial, may not have entirely disappeared, but it is on the way out, replaced by non-military tools such as sanctions. And the primary role of the United States is not to discipline rogue actors with unilateral applications of power. It's to build the global system that will discipline them automatically. That's what we should be doing. And Doran points out how the hellscape of Syria proved what that theoretical approach produced in the real world. In October 2015, Moscow and Tehran intervened together in the Syrian civil war when they began bombing cities and reducing almost every major city in Syria to rubble. Obama said an attempt by Russia and Iran to prop up Assad and try to pacify the population is just going to get them stuck in a quagmire and it won't work. Oh, okay. And he said hard power solutions are inherently self-defeating. And I think at the end of the day, you can be against intervention and still believe in what Duran now points out. He says the traditional playbook calls for keeping Putin guessing about what the United States military might do while preemptively arming the Ukrainians with weapons and other capabilities that will guarantee unbearable pain to the Russians. But that hasn't happened. While the American military and its European allies have indeed armed the Ukrainians, the aid has come too late and without the necessary lethality to influence Putin's major decisions. And Zelensky, in his famous quote, offered sort of a succinct summary of the Biden approach. He said, the fight is here. I need ammunition, not a ride. And that really succinctly responds, doesn't it? The Biden administration wants to sort of help people that are sort of icons of being good, soft, good image, good photo op with Zelensky, but yet just give him a ride rather than actually helping him win the war. And Biden continued to be afraid. He even tweeted, he said, I want to be clear. We will defend every inch of NATO territory with the full might of united and galvanized NATO. And yet Biden was deterring an act that had not been threatened yet. There was an attempt to deter that which had not been put on the table. And with respect to the aggression that Putin was actually prosecuting, Biden used the same tweet to all but welcome it. He said, but we will not fight a war against Russia and Ukraine. Biden wrote that a direct confrontation between NATO and Russia is World War III and something we must strive to prevent. So our president was rejecting a direct confrontation with Russia that few were advocating. And at that moment, the president's critics were urging him to deliver more lethal assistance to the Ukrainians, MiG fighters from Poland, etc., which would be flown by Ukrainian pilots. And no American or NATO soldiers would join the fight. So that there was doublespeak in Biden's World War II tweet that now defines the lived reality of America's Middle Eastern allies. Biden administration's zealous efforts to transform the Islamic Republic from pariah to partner are neither containing nor deterring Iran's leaders. Quite the opposite. They are emboldened as the ballistic missile attack on Erbil not to mention the recent rise to the presidency of hardliner Raisi in Iran indicates. And now as the Gulf states become quote-unquote security orphans, countries that signed the Abraham Accords with Israel under the Trump administration now are bizarrely turning to China, turning to Iran, and the Emirates are actually giving Russian oligarchs places to put their yachts? It's just sort of bizarre, but it's not inexplainable. It's part of their kleptocracy, but also part of their need to be more promiscuous because the relationship they had with America is no longer reliable, and it is certainly unexceptional. And last, Duran finishes his piece as saying that as a means of stopping Iran from getting a bomb, the nuclear deal is sadly wanting. But as a tool for branding the Saudis, the domestic rivals of the progressives, and above all, the Israelis as warmongers, it is an effective propaganda tool. When a kinder and gentler Islamic Republic fails to arrive, and fail it most certainly will, the Biden administration mandarins will lecture us like didactic professors. More in sorrow than in anger, they will shake their heads and lament the fact that those damned Israelis and the Saudis just could learn to share the Middle East with the Iranians. We tried to tell them, but they just wouldn't listen. Yeah, that's what's going to happen. There's no way the left ever admits they were wrong. They will always then blame it on Israel. They'll always then blame it on Saudi or other countries that are not in their red-green axis of the progressives and the Islamist alliance. Now... I've called in this program for years that we abandon both and that we start to wean them of this bolstering relationship. But as I said during the Trump administration, at least President Trump was rebalancing the equation as he was reminding the Arab regimes, Arab governments, that we would not abandon them. And we have bases there in many of them. But it needed to be aborted from this binary "We love them or we hate them way," and to start to put pressure on countries like Saudi and else and Egypt and, and others that not only as tough love of friends, but these are dictatorships. these are theocracies. These are countries that we share very few values with. And just like the open door to China has proven to be a massive loss of investment and horrific advancement of a genocidal regime it's similarly in saudi which created al-qaeda and other wahhabis and the egyptian brotherhood and others that the taliban in afghanistan after our 20 years the pakistani deobandis and others constantly we put investments without strategy of ideological countermeasures that are open countermeasures open advancement of freedom and liberty. That is part of what American exceptionalism is. So I took the time to walk through Doran's piece with you because I think this is the key, is that ultimately American exceptionalism needs to be front and center in our doctrine. When it's not, our allies will abandon us, America will be insecure, our enemies will rise and whether they're jihadis socialist thugs authoritarian dictators or all of the above from Putin to Xi Jinping to Khamenei they will advance their jihad and radicalize others on our soil and american ideas will flounder and we're seeing that american ideas are floundering domestically our foundations are being attacked by our own population who see American history as evil rather than as transformational of its time. So American exceptionalism is a concept that we need to refocus on in our schools, in our media, and in our activism. And through it will come a consistent message that, for the most part, will win. I say for the most part because... There are also other forces out there that we cannot ignore that ultimately are unpredictable and, despite our best efforts, will not react in a way that we think they will. Thank you. Thank you for, get, for being with me again. Hope we've shed some light on it. I owe you a conversation on the Islamic Society of North America and its bizarre front-page magazine piece this last month on India. And I don't want to rush that. And we will talk about that next time. Next episode on Reform This. Tell your friends about Reform This. Find us on Twitter at Reform This Radio. And also find me at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D R Z U H D I J A S S A R. God bless. We'll see you soon. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.